Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Back on June 2nd, MoveOn.org sponsored hundreds of house parties all around the country for folks to gather and watch Michael Moore's latest documentary, Where to Invade Next. Contrary to what the name of the film led me to believe, it's not about war at all, but about all the good ideas that other countries have implemented that the USA should consider importing back into our country. I helped to pull together one such film viewing house party, and we're going to interview several folk who attended that gathering that I organized, but which was held at the home of our friend Myron Buckholz. But first, we'll have another edition of History and Our Best Future with newly retired history teacher and all-around deep thinker and doer, Myron Buckholz. As a lead-up to dealing with Michael Moore's movie, it seems appropriate, Myron, to fill in a little bit of what the social safety net in the United States has been and where it's going. I mean, people certainly take for granted these days Social Security or Medicaid and Medicare, but they don't really have much sense of where they all came from and how we got to the social welfare state that we live in now that many people decry but depend on all the same. So could you fill in a little bit of that history, where we've been and where we're going? The Great Depression had such a major impact on our society for a whole bunch of reasons, and one of them was because of the social safety net. Because until the 1930s, if you needed aid, you had to depend on your churches, your local institutions, your neighbors to help you out. I remember my grandmother talking about the hobos who were riding the rails and that sometimes my dad would go out to get eggs, and there weren't any eggs. And my grandmother would simply respond by saying, well, the chickens will lay eggs again tomorrow. And occasionally they lost a chicken, but she knew, and most people did, that we had lots of poor people, and having something to eat was crucial to our entire society. So we ended up with a number of programs coming out of the 1930s, because when you had a depression on the scale that we had, families and churches and local institutions were not able to keep up with the demand. The history of Eau Claire says that one of the things our, our city government did in the early 1930s was drive the hobos out from underneath the bridge by the Eau Claire River, and that's not much of a social safety net. So we got programs like Social Security started, which is old age insurance, so that once you could not work any longer, you didn't have to worry about three square meals a day and a roof over your head. That has been expanded to be Social Security and disability insurance. It's been expanded to add children. And it's constantly under attack because the belief is that if you provide people aid who are poor, they will become dependent on that aid and then will eventually refuse to work for themselves. I don't believe that holds up to scrutiny one bit. And when I hear that argument about cutting people off of welfare, 
my response typically is, so if you want to punish the adults, we should starve the children. And in effect, that's what you're doing. We're the richest country in the world. There are things that we can afford to do like many countries in the world do and actually took the cue from us to provide a safety net for our most vulnerable citizens. Since the 1960s, the Great Society programs of LBJ, the only other program that I've heard, the major program change that I've heard of since then, was what happened under Bill Clinton in the 1990s, the change about welfare, because I was concerned, exactly as you said, you know, these poor people are just going to keep leeching on the system. Could you talk about what happened in the 1990s and the effect that's had on our country? Well, the End Welfare as We Know It program ended welfare simply by throwing people off of welfare. The idea was that you need to get a job. Well, if there are no jobs available, or if the job means that you leave your children at home unattended because you cannot afford childcare while you go off to that job, what does that do to our overall society? And we have seen all kinds of negative things happen because of that. I understand people who want people to get jobs. I think that's great. But at what cost to society when you leave children unattended at home and don't provide the proper care because our wages are so low that you cannot afford daycare and so on and so forth? So I believe in erring on the side of providing basic services to mothers and children and people who are hurting. And we know that many people who do not find work on a consistent basis frequently have some mental illness, some disability of some kind that keeps them from working. So we threw a lot of people off of aid, and many of those families have never recovered. While we can spend all kinds of money on weapons, we have a hard time spending a few dollars on food for children, and I just think that's wrong. Thanks to Myron Buckles for another glimpse of history and our best future. And we're going to continue right on talking to Myron because, as I mentioned before, he hosted a MoveOn.org house party on June 2nd to bring together folks to watch Where to Invade Next, Michael Moore's latest documentary. It was about more than what we usually think about as the social safety net, but there is definitely overlap. Today for Spirit in Action, we'll talk to several people who were part of that viewing party, and we might as well transition and start right now with Myron Buckholz in person. Thank you again, Myron, so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. I'm happy to be here. To recap, for the film viewing at your house, it must have been a decent enticement because between 18 and 23 people showed up, depending on who's counting. What did you think of that evening? I really enjoy watching people's facial expressions during movies that demonstrate what is possible in societies who really try to accomplish great things. I knew much of what I heard on the movie. I know other people didn't, and the expressions are just that shock and disbelief, and can they really be doing that type of thing? And the answer is yes. I'm an educator by trade, and by nature, the movie is very educational. I don't think there was a lot of surprise in terms of who showed up for the evening. It's the usual band of suspects, people who are involved in progressive causes. 
it certainly would have been nice to have some people who weren't part of the usual band of suspects, people maybe with more conservative points of view. And I think that their jaws would have dropped all the way to the floor with some of the information. What can you do? What can I do? What can we do as a population to get that information out? I want to backtrack a little bit on my previous comment about watching people's expressions. I think many in the audience knew many of the things that were said, but just hearing it said the way it is, you know, causes that you know, discomfort and that disbelief. It's like, I can't believe they're doing this. I know the arguments. I have heard them over and over and over again, why we can't do this. It all comes down to how much money do you want to spend in the programs? But I also think that the underlying theme of all the things that Moore said were going on in various countries of the world, to me, the foundation of all of the different programs was this concept that everybody can have basic health care needs met regardless of what they can afford. So if you have prisoners who are released much earlier in some European countries than that would ever happen here, if they are mentally ill, they don't go to prison. They go to doctors. The drug treatment programs in Portugal, yes, if you have legal drugs, they have problems with drugs. But they see it as a medical problem, and then they go get medical care. And the long-term benefit to the society is much cheaper in the long run because they do not spend the tremendous amount of money on incarceration as we do here. In the movie, Michael Moore and the guests, the people he's interviewing, share the fact that the inspiration for many of these programs and maybe the original implementation of them happened in the United States. Did you see that as being true? I mean, could you, because you know so much about history, Myron, were you saying, oh, yeah, I remember that was the law that was in 1942 and this is the one that was in 1965. Did you see that happening throughout the movie? Well, I think the most shocking example that was used for me and many in attendance was the statement from the Norway prison system that we got our idea from the Bill of Rights because the Eighth Amendment outlaws cruel and unusual punishment. And what's more cruel and unusual than locking somebody up for life and throwing away the key? Solitary confinement, many of your listeners already know that we lead the world in incarcerations. And what are we really truly gaining from that? And the Norwegians are asking us that question while they have prisons that look a little bit more like holiday camps, but their recidivism rate is extremely low. It's not zero. Nothing is perfect, but it is much lower than ours. Ours borders at 50%. If you're in, you're probably going back. And in Norway, if you're in, you're probably not. Well, this cost-benefit to society is, it should be very obvious. But again, they have a health care system. So when you leave the prison system, you aren't thrown out in the street wondering where you're going to go if you're having a bad day mentally, if you're having a bad day physically, and just kind of fending for yourself, and then, of course, being a convict. I just recently saw a poster of two young people holding up a sign. One was dressed in an orange jumpsuit, and it said it cost $60,000 to incarcerate me for a year. And another student dressed as, another person dressed as a student holding up a sign that it cost them like $10,000 to educate me for a year. You know, that's pretty blunt. And I think we can take some lessons from many of these countries. I thought Where to Invade Next was an excellent movie. 
I have my personal moment that is the high point of the movie for me, the most gripping, powerful one. What for you hit you, top moment or two of the film that felt inspirational, moving, powerful, gripping to you? Anders Breivik, the mass murderer in Norway, was sentenced to the maximum of 21 years in prison. Norway has a law. No matter how bad you are, you will not stay for more than 21 years. Quite frankly, I was bothered a little bit by it because it's a guy who shot, I forget the number, it's in the 20s, I believe, teenagers to death, in cold blood. But the Norwegians believe that after 21 years of education and health care, that they expect that Anders Breivik can return to society. And that is really impressive and really challenges what one thinks about the worst people in society. And the Norwegians approach it from a position of, you pay your debt, we'll educate you, we will treat you, and then you will return. And we approach it as we're going to lock you up and throw away the key. Another of the stunning moments for me was when they're visiting, where was it, Slovenia, where they have free university there. That is to say that students do not have to pay tuition in order to learn at the college level there, just like we don't have to pay for high school. The thing that surprised me wasn't that some countries do that. I I realize that there are countries in Europe that do that kind of thing. But they were asked then, they allow people from the United States to go to school there. And so some of you listeners might want to put this in as an idea. You can't afford college here. If you can afford a trip to Sylvania, you can move in there. They'll cover you through college. And they think that that is a good thing to do if you're college material, that having you work and learn right alongside their students. How do you react to that kind of idea about our higher education in general, Myron? Well, the comments from the students themselves were so enlightening. And one was, right away, I thought, I'm an American, so I only speak one language. So how do I go to a foreign country and study? I believe they said they had 112 different classes that were taught entirely in English. And the other comment was from the Slovenian students, Why would you allow allow a foreigner to come to your school and also have education for nothing? And the response was that if they're able to charge the foreigners, then they're going to eventually want to charge us. And we believe that education is a right and everybody should be able to have it regardless of how well off you are. So folks, keep that in mind. Slovenia is a place you could go. You could move there. They would cover your tuition. You would be able to go to college without having to pay. And in some ways, I think that means that maybe people in Slovenia are a little bit more compassionate towards our students than people in the United States. Anyway, Myron, I thought it was a powerful evening. I really appreciated you hosting it. I know I did some of the organization, obviously, to get it going. But the people that turned out, I think, turned out in part because of your welcome home and the way that you lead the community in thinking about the important things. So thanks for hosting it, and thanks again for joining me for Spirit in Action. I had a great time. Thanks a lot. So, Myron Buckholz hosted the viewing house party. Another person to attend was Patty Scott, and we'll get her feedback from the night by getting her on the phone. Thanks, Patty, for joining me for Spirit in Action. Hi, Mark. How did you like the evening at Myron Buckholz's place where we watched Where to Invade Next? Well, I liked being there with, shall I say, fellow travelers, people I know who have some of the same concerns and whatnot that I have. 
But I enjoyed the movie partly because how it sort of turned the idea of invading on its head in a way. Instead of it being invasion to impose our ideas or to appropriate resources like, you know, gold or oil, it was invading to be curious and find out if there are some ideas that we can appropriate. And the appropriation won't hurt the place where it already is, but it might be something that can enrich the place where we live. And so I I sort of like that. And have you been to any of the countries that he covered in the film? Have you experienced firsthand any of that? Well, I have been to Norway, but I did not experience the Norwegian prison system. So <laughs> You didn't. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I remember talking about employer-employee issues, especially related to time off, and talked about school, talked about prison, talked about education, university education, and women's health. That's what I remember. So which of the issues that they talked about in the film particularly seemed like new information for you or particularly more vivid information perhaps than you'd known before? I think there were three segments that struck me and kind of stuck with me and left me with a yes kind of a feeling. And one was how children in the schools in France, or at least in that particular school, are fed. I like the way, I think in each case, the, the, the other two that I was interested in, in particularly interested in, was the prison system in Norway and the educational system in Finland. And I think in all of those cases, and actually the ones, the segments that I haven't mentioned, they seem more oriented towards looking at people as the whole person, full humanity, not just one sort of facet of humanity. And in the case of the kids in the schools in France, I just loved it that they used that, you know, the needing to have a lunch, a meal at school as another learning opportunity, but to learn about what is good food and how to be sort of gracious at a table, sharing food with others. And that they were, I think, the message, because they got very good food cooked by a chef and a great variety of food, that sort of gives the message that children, you are important and food and eating lunch isn't just sort of an afterthought because we have to and we've got 20 minutes to do it in. It makes it a more of a gracious occasion and exposes the kids to a wider variety of food and nourishes them better, it appeared. I was struck by their reaction when he showed them a photograph of, this is what an American school lunch looks like. And and there was sort of a, ooh, kind of reaction. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, those poor children. You know, I've spent a fair amount of time in France and a number of different trips with friends there. Yeah, it's true. The whole approach to meals there, it's no wonder that their level of obesity is so much less than what we have in the United States. They actually sit down and are present with their food and make choices as opposed to, I'm going to wolf something down kind of approach that is so common here. Right, right. The food isn't just eaten just for its own sake, for the sake of the calories that will give you more fuel to finish the rest of your day, but with appreciation and to learn to appreciate and appreciate differences and variety. What was it about the prison system in Norway that you particularly found interesting? It was so much less restrictive and appeared to be so much less punitive 
to be designed with an eye towards helping a person become more whole, helping a person attain the skills or the knowledge that they need to be able to be successful outside of the prison system and to give them opportunities to practice that. Whereas I know in our prison system, there's an awful lot of punitiveness. We do an awful lot of things that seem more designed to tear a person down and, for example, make someone who might come in with mental illness problems already put them in a situation such as solitary confinement that just exacerbates the mental illness or is more likely to exacerbate it than it is to help them get over that mental illness or to to be able to change and to be able to heal. So it it just, I, I really appreciated the fact that it seemed much more holistic, much more human to honor the humanity in the prisoners, not just the the act or acts that got them into prison, but to see something beyond that and to try to tend and nourish something beyond that. Yeah. The one that made me laugh, they're talking to the guy and he's kind of showing him around and seems to have the keys for everything. And he says, wait a minute, you're the convicted killer or whoa. (laughs) And he seemed like a person. Amazing, huh? Right. And... I'm sure there are people that you cannot give, you cannot trust too far. But I also think sometimes behaving with trust towards somebody actually helps them grow and develop a better self-image and to have more confidence in themselves as somebody who is maybe trustworthy. Yeah, I do think that we're so focused on punishment and seeing the person as evil that we often don't see the light in them, the the good, the the stuff that'll make it a little bit better. Moveon.org, when they contacted me and then I connected with Myron to host this, they said, you know, bring together a group of people, 15 to 25, and we were more than that. Do you have an inkling of why they would want to do it that way? Is there something about the experience that felt different to you than just going to a movie theater? Well, I knew most of the people, and I had a pretty good idea that most of the people who would be interested in seeing the movie are probably fairly like-minded to me. And there is something refreshing and sort of supportive about viewing something like that in the company of people who you know share a lot of your values, maybe not all of them, but a lot of your values. And I think there's value in being able to physically see that you are not alone. Because sometimes it can feel like, you know, a voice crying in the wilderness if you're just by yourself and it can be very overwhelming. But to see that there are others with the same concerns and the same or similar values is helpful, I think. Have you considered yourself as a political activist in the past, Patty? No, I don't really consider myself a political activist. I tend to be a more behind-the-scenes person, or if I do actions, they're not really out there, I guess you'd say. They're quieter, probably more personal. What other things that were featured in the movie struck you particularly impressively? Well, I was really struck by the segment on the educational system in Finland. They talked about how, I forget how many years ago it was, that they looked at how they were doing in their educational system and they were not doing well, or they certainly weren't doing as well as they would like. And so they took a completely fresh look at how they do things and sort of counterintuitively, they reduced, significantly reduced, almost abolished homework 
and they have one of the shortest school days anywhere in the world, I believe, and they have some of the very best, highest results of their educational system. And to me, that gives impetus to reevaluating how we do things in our system, how long we keep kids in school, how much we burden them with homework. You know, it really merits another look at how kids learn and what's important for them to learn and what environmental things encourage learning. Absolutely. Yeah, there was so much. It was a fun movie and it was moving. I think for me, perhaps the moment where I was struck the most was toward the end. I think it was a woman from Iceland. They were asked, you know, what advice could they give to us in the United States? And I think that may have been the only case where they asked that. Do you remember that moment? Sort of, yeah. And her bit of advice was to think less me, 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 and to think more of all of us together. Right. I like that, and that kind of goes well with that point I was making about. I felt like in, in each of the segments that were presented, there was an attitude more about we behind what was happening, or more of an idea of holistic, you know, looking holistically rather than looking just you know at profit or that you know a particular facet of something, but recognizing that it's part of a context. You know, there's a much bigger context in which all this happens, and you need to feed more than just one facet in order to enrich, you know, the entire context of how everything is happening and where it happens and how it happens. Having experienced this once, uh, how likely would you rate yourself to go and view a film in a similar type setting, you know, where it's a documentary, a movie with a message that you'd be seeing with a maybe a like-minded or similarly interested group. I'd be very likely to. I'd be very likely to. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining me, Patty, for Spirit in Action. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. That was Patty Scott, one of four people we'll talk to today for Spirit in Action. This is Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production. Find us on the web at northernspiritradio.org with links to guests and more info. There are comments. Post one when you visit and make our communication two-way. And another important feature of the website is the donate button. This work is full-time for 11 years now, and your support makes it possible. Even more important, though, is supporting your local community radio station, a wonderful, necessary, vital alternative source of news and music. So support them first from your heart and from your wallet. We're talking about Michael Moore's latest documentary, Where to Invade Next, and we're talking with representatives from the group of people who showed up for the free showing sponsored by MoveOn.org at the home of Myron Buckles back on June 2nd. Let's talk to a couple more. Next up is Donna Berry, and we can meet with her in person. Donna, thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. Happy to be here. And were you equally happy to be at the Michael Moore movie? How did that experience strike you? Well, I really liked the movie, and I loved being able to see it with a small group of people that I also knew and who were also solid progressives. What percentage of the people in the room did you know, the 18 or 23 of us that were there? I suppose I knew about half of them, at least casually. I think you've been an activist yourself for some, some decades. So I suspect that in many ways, the things that we're in, where to invade next, 
that you knew about a lot of them. Have you also traveled to Europe and the other areas that were included in the movie? No, I have never traveled off this continent, and I think maybe Canada, but that's it. So there were actually a number of things in there that I didn't know about. I didn't know about the Tunisian piece. I was amazed. Say some more about the pieces that you didn't know that you were learning about from the movie, because I'm a little bit surprised you didn't know about them. Usually on the left, people tend to have more input, let us say, from foreign countries than perhaps a good Americans. Well, I've always been aware that many other countries have many good and innovative programs that we don't have here, or ideas. But the two that stuck out from the movie were the way the the Tunisian situation played out and the amount of influence that women asserted and, and took over the changes in that government. And the other one was that I knew something about German society, and I knew that there was a real effort to prevent Holocaust denial and to learn from that historical experience. But I didn't know the ways in which things were posted, like the stuff that was on the sidewalks and on the buildings to designate where Jews who had been taken used to live and where things had happened so that you cannot walk around a German city without encountering these daily reminders, which I think is terrific. I was very impressed by that. Of course, what Michael Moore is advocating in there is that we bring these ideas home and we apply them here. Are there any of the ideas that were shared in the film that you would feel would be particularly delightful or possible or functional to implement in the United States? So, so, you know, if you have the Jews, well, let's commemorate, here's the place where all these people were killed by the U.S. military or settlers or whatever. Do you have a sense of which of those pieces could be imported back to the United States? Well, that one. I mean, I do think that it would be a big deal in our sense of common history if we commemorated the genocides that we have perpetrated in some way. And I wonder about the number of historical monuments If they say, you know, settlers came here in 1892, they established these settlements in the process, of course, they took over land that previously had been occupied by the Ojibwe or the Anishinaabe or whatever, you know, how you want to say it, and give a little bit about the history of displacement at the very least. And then to commemorate massacres, I, th- I think it makes total sense and slave auctions and all the other ways in which, you know, we took this continent by force and built it by slave labor. I don't think that's something we should ever forget. And I think that it just is going to require a lot of what some kind of called, some people see this as a negative, but revisionist history. We really need to take another look at a lot of this stuff and just make sure that we include everything in our histories. Or one can never include everything, but include a very balanced view of what our history has been. And, and that means acknowledging that the story of America is not a heroic story. I mean, there were many brave and principled people, but the settlement of this continent, many, many people suffered and died as a result, and many cultures and languages have been destroyed. And I don't think we want to whitewash that. There is, however, another thing that was in the Michael Moore movie that I really would love to see implemented here, and which would be a lot more fun when he was talking about the way children learn to eat and to appreciate food in France. I remember being in first grade and sitting in this lunchroom, which was full of hundreds of children, and it was so noisy that I could not eat. I was like six, and I just sat there, and my food sat there, and then I went back to the classroom 20 minutes later because it was overwhelmingly negative in terms of the atmosphere. And school lunches were, you know, they weren't as bad when I was a kid because they were at least cooked in the building. But 
they've gotten worse and worse. And, and I just think teaching children to appreciate the finer things in life, including food, should absolutely be part of the curriculum. And should we have actually high-quality food, you know, a little bit of gourmet? I was stunned. The kids turning down drinking soda pop or other items that in the United States, that's what kids, you know, just fight over each other to grab. Yeah, I don't know how much. I mean, you have to ask yourself how far away from, you know, whatever diet they get at home can you move? Because everybody loves what they grew up eating. I mean, there's kind of no way around that. I personally love bologna sandwiches on white bread, you know, and <laughs> with mayonnaise <laughs> because I grew up eating it, you know. And it is true that my mother actually baked the white bread and she baked it in the large juice cans because it was the exact size of a slice of bologna and that way you didn't have those irritating corners left over. And it was wonderful white bread, but still, but still, I'd settle for Wonder Bread. So there's no way around that. But I just think we can expand their horizons, and we can also include more foods from other kinds of cuisines under the, other than the standard American diet. You know, there's all sorts of Asian food and that many children would be familiar with. I think of you as a perennial activist in many facets of your life. Why don't you tell our listeners, Donna, which activism has particularly called you and maybe still which calls you? And I think that maybe has something to do with which of the things in the movie you found particularly compelling. Well, first of all, I'll say that I don't really consider myself an activist. I talk a good game, but in terms of what I actually do, I think it's pretty limited. But in terms of the things that called to me in the movie, partly because of some health problems of my own, which happened many years ago, I've had to look carefully at what I was actually eating. And also because of the way I was raised, I've been very aware of changes in our food system because my family had a big garden and we ate out of the garden and didn't think that there was anything unusual about that. And so I've always appreciated fresh local food because that's what I was raised on. <laughs> and I can remember my mother coming in to the dinner table with a plate of beefsteak tomatoes all sliced up and arranged and my looking at them and saying, oh, no, not again, you know, because he had tomatoes every day in August. And she would look at me and say, eat them or can them, it's your choice. <laughs> because we were not going to waste food. <laughs> no. And so now that seems extraordinary. I mean, there's no place to buy those kinds of tomatoes, you know, because they'd only been off the vine for a few minutes, and they were way too ripe to ship anywhere. But that's what I grew up with. And so I think that has kind of made me more aware of food issues specifically. And in terms of the other area in which I've been active locally is I've served on the Transit Commission. And so to me, all of the, I don't know if he got into transportation in particular, I don't think he did in the movie, but all the issues around energy use and how we get where we're going have always been important to me. And folks, I want to tell you that years ago, I don't know what it was, maybe seven years ago or maybe even more, Donna came to me at one point. She says, how can I help out Northern Spirit Radio? She could do grant writing or other forms of getting Northern Spirit Radio moving. We didn't collaborate on that a great deal, but I think you have that kind of heart. You look for what's good and transformative in society and try and help that way. You care to name any of the other ways that you've worked? No, I don't think so. I mean... Actually, there have been some things that have been notable in the past. When I lived in the Twin Cities in the 80s, I was part of a group called Women in Many Voices, which worked on women's economic empowerment and relationships across classes within the women's movement, which I still think is really important. And we got some good things done. I mean, I didn't obviously do it alone, but I was very involved in some projects to encourage uh, entrepreneurship among women. And it was a good time. 
And I was also wondering if you could share a little bit of your impression, Donna, of watching this film together with other activist-leaning folks, uh, the people who share similar concerns, let's say a receptive audience, as opposed to sitting in the theater where, you know, you pay your bucks and you come and seize it. The way that Move On organized this seemed delightfully innovative to me. So how did it strike you sitting with approximate 20 of us who were there? I like doing it that way. I would probably also have enjoyed it in a theater, but I think doing it in that way meant that there were inevitably conversations outside the movie about the movie with the whole group or most of them, people who stayed. And I also have to say that the thing which I think I shared probably with everybody in the room and which I think was in some ways the most important message of the movie was that this idea of American exceptionalism, that we're somehow better and different than every other culture in the world, is something that I don't think anybody there believed. I don't think Michael Moore believes it. I think it's critical that Americans stop believing it. We can still be patriotic. We can love our country. We can recognize what we're great at without believing that somehow we're so special and different that we don't need to take advice or learn lessons from anybody else. That was the good feeling about that room full of people. There is one aspect of what he presents. It looks to me like the safety net, health and income, college, any of these things that I think help make society workable, that they're much more robust in the countries that Michael Moore was filming for Where to Invade Next. Have you had personal experience of the safety net working or not working in your case or in the case of those intimately around you in the U.S. that we saw a different way of organizing the social safety net there? I certainly needed the social safety net about, it's been over 20 years ago when I was uh, had some chronic health problems. I was a mother of two children. And after a year of trying to make it work, realized that I could not work full-time and parent those children well. It just wasn't going to work. And I quit my job, and I went on welfare. And I always had, I think I was on for about five years, during which I had some some income, usually every year, but it wasn't much. And primarily, I was supported by child support. And, you know, we had medical care through whatever Medicaid program was in Minnesota at the time. And it wasn't great, but it beat the alternative for me. And I've never regretted that decision. The reality is that now I would not be allowed to do that. And that bothers me when I think about women who are in the situation I was in and who simply would not be allowed to make that decision. I also remember, this was just a few years ago, I had a housemate who was from Belarus. She was here on a Fulbright scholarship, and we had met a woman who was a single parent, had a couple of teenage boys, and somebody commented, yeah, just keeping them in groceries is, you know, a big deal because they're teenage boys, they eat a lot. And the woman from Belarus said, well, I mean, doesn't she get a check? Like from the government. And we said, well, no, I mean, she has a job, and no, she doesn't get a check. Nothing? No. Nothing. And she said, that would not happen in Belarus. It just wouldn't happen. Any woman in her situation would be getting some kind of government support. And I said, well, how do you feel about women getting that kind of support? I mean, why does it make sense to you? And she said, we are all Belarusian. We are in this together. And I realized that that is not the attitude here. At the time that I was on welfare, I would have to be careful about the car radio because if it was on some right-wing talk show radio, they would say such hateful thing about welfare recipients that I would be diving for the dial before my children heard it. That we apparently, and maybe it's because we're an immigrant culture, 
But I don't think so, because it's not like this in Canada. We do not see that we are all in this together. And that was exactly the comment that the people in Iceland made right towards the end. U.S., we tend to see me, 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 whereas in these other countries that work so much more successfully together with the safety net, they're thinking of we, we, we. And I'm not referring to France. (laughs) Well, I know, Donna, that you're moving away from Eau Claire. I'm sad to experience that. It feels for me like one of the local lights is going kind of distant. And I'm not sure, you know, the 75 miles away in the Twin Cities that I'll be able to fully see it. But I at least hope that we see each other on Facebook and occasionally when you come back to nurture the good roots in Eau Claire. Thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. You're quite welcome. It's been a pleasure. And yes, I expect to be back visiting Eau Claire, although I am also looking forward to the Twin Cities. Sadly, we say goodbye to Don and Barry. Thanks to her for sharing her reactions to Where to Invade. Michael Moore would be pleased to hear it, I'm sure. But next up is Bill Jaskowiak. He and his wife, Lynn, were part of the festivities watching Where to Invade next. They even brought popcorn, and we can talk to him in person. Bill, thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. It's my pleasure to be here. I've had the pleasure of standing with you on Peace Corner here in Eau Claire for a number of years. I know you as an activist working with Myron's campaign, for instance. Many good ways that we've connected over the years. One more good way was that you were part of the viewing of Michael Moore's movie. How did you like it? I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I was wondering why this country can't do some of those same things. Any things in particular that you're referring to there? Since you work for the Social Security Administration, you have actually some ideas of what some of the safety net programs for our nation actually look like, the nuts and bolts. The safety net that we have here, Social Security, is just sort of a bare-bones minimum retirement so that people don't hit the floor when they fall. They have a little mattress. Uh, It could be better. Benefits could be a little bit higher. Retirement age doesn't need to be raised to 70 unless you want to work till you drop. And so which of the benefits that you saw, the kind of safety net and other ways just of running your country, of caring for the people, of connecting them, that you saw in Where to Invade, which ones do you think should be particularly added to supplement to the bare mattress on the floor that we have here? Well, I was pleased that the Italians offered their employees so much time off that they would be able to go home for lunch, that they would have be able to vacation. And they paid them a decent wage so that they could afford to go on vacation. Decent wages, $15 an hour, say, would increase people's Social Security earnings, too, because they'd be paying more taxes, they'd have more earnings, and the benefits are based on how much you pay in. So more vacation. Is it indiscreet if I ask you how much vacation you get after working a number of years? I earn eight hours of vacation every two weeks, 26 days a year. Which I guess translates to five weeks, and that's after working for a whole lot of years with Social Security. Fifteen years before you would earn that. But that also then includes if you need to take time off to take your kids to school or if they'll play or, you know, that's part of their vacation time. So there's frequently times when I just would need a mental health day then to have to take time off. So what else you saw in the movie surprised you? Was any of it particularly new information for you? I was really impressed with, I think it was in Norway, their prison system. They cared, it seemed, about their inmates. 
they were trying to rehabilitate them, not just to punish them severely. Uh, it seems very different than some of the prisons for profit that we have in this country. And I was tickled when they said that, well, Michael asked them, where did they get the idea of treating them so humanely? And they got it from our Constitution, <laughs> that cruel and unusual punishment shouldn't be handed out. I think we've come to accept some of the things that are done because they're bad people and they deserve to be punished. And But Norway's recidivism rate was much lower than the United States, according to the figures that were quoted in the movie. One of the things in the movie that touched me the most was, it was right toward the end where they were asking about what recommendation there could be for the USA, way we should look at things. And the women from Iceland said something about how we need to think seriously about reconsidering an American attitude, me, 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 and think more of us together, think of us as a people together. How do you experience that when people are coming to you for Social Security? Now, they're not actually asking for a handout there. They're just saying, okay, I'm retiring. Okay, it's now time to draw on my account. But the me, me, me attitude, I think, probably could connect more with SSI requests. I think that's right. Uh, people have an expectation that they've worked and paid into Social Security for however many years, and that these are their benefits that they've earned. They are. They're the earned benefits. Where the SSI, I don't have, you know, the, it's not quite the same issues. These are people who have very limited incomes, who are either blind, disabled, or 65, and need some sort of assistance. I don't see them that there's that me, me, me attitude with them. The sort of culture has been ingrained where they, they're poor, their parents were poor. Most of them are not well-educated. It just is a cycle that they can fall into. They, they don't get fed well. They don't learn well. They never really excel or succeed at things. Maybe not their own fault, but they, I don't think they really have a me, me, me attitude. I don't see people you know, getting a lot of checks or having children that they claim are disabled so that they get more money. It's not kind of a welfare thing in that respect. At least that's not what I'm seeing, some people who are coming in, you know, they weren't able to work. They weren't able to earn the quarters of coverage to be insured for a disability benefit. My son had been on SSI for a period because he was disabled and he had not worked sufficiently to qualify for Social Security disability. He hadn't had the opportunity. He was injured when he was 17. He didn't have the opportunity to work in the community to earn credits. But it's not like he has this me, me, me attitude either. And it's something I don't really see, I guess, what I'm saying. You know, uh, SSI recipients, uh, Social Security beneficiaries. There may be some of that, but I don't see it. I more see the me, me, me things with the very wealthy individuals who try to maximize their Social Security benefits, filing on their spouse's benefits and holding off till age 70 to get benefits on their own to maximize how much they get back. The wealthy people, I think they're not the 1%, but they, they're 1% wannabes. You know? A lot of them, not, they're not content to just make it. They want to be better. Not every wealthy person, obviously, but... I see that attitude. I deserve more. I've worked so hard. I'm self-made. 
I really enjoyed the experience of sitting there with a group of people watching this movie. I'm used to standing with you monthly, as I mentioned, and that's part of the connection. There were people there I had never connected with before. Did you experience seeing the movie differently because we were sitting in Myron's house watching it together with this large group of people, different than, say, if we'd been in the theater watching it? In the sense that like-minded people were there because they wanted to see it, I think this particular movie would have been good to see in the theater as well. The only people who are going to be going to the movie are people who think that there's a better way of running a country than the way the United States is run right now. You know, if anyone was monitoring our elections, any other country, you know, the way we monitor elections in other countries, I'm sure they would be laughing at us the way that some of the underhanded treachery that goes on. So seeing this movie in Myron's basement or seeing this movie at a theater, I think they would have been a similar type of experience. It was a little more intimate in that we didn't have to pay $7 for popcorn. But I think the people who were watching would have a similar mindset, you know, that there's a better way to run a country. We aren't the Lone Ranger. The United States is not the Lone Ranger. You know, we do have to learn to live with people from different cultures, people from different countries. It's not all white bread. We were here first. Well, no, we weren't. <laughs> you know, that only Americans should be able to do this. I don't see that Americans are superior as a group. You know, I think that every country has something to offer and we're all humans. You know, I don't want to say that one class or I'm not going to say race, but a culture is uh, any better or different or better than any other culture. Given the same opportunities, I think anyone could excel. Some of us, though, not some of us, but some of the people in this country are seem to kept down, you know, that they are discriminated against and per perpetually discriminated against because their skin color or their hair or the way they talk and that they have no money. That really the money is, I think, a big problem. Uh, a living wage would go a long way towards solving a lot of problems that we have in this country. $15 is a start. You know, people could pay their rent. They might, you know, and I'm pretty sure that if a person who had been making $8 an hour was suddenly to get $15 an hour, that they're not going to say, I think I'm just going to bank this $7 an hour to and invest it. No, they're going to go spend it. And so everybody's going to make out the other businesses, you know, the car manufacturers, uh, grocery stores. Everyone, you know, window replacement, solar energy, everybody will make out because people will have more to spend. The big guys at the top, they've got their jets, they've got their mansions. They're not going to spend anymore. They're not going to keep the economy rolling the way an increase in wages would. But I think that it was kind of nice because, you know, I, I could get up and go to the bathroom if I wanted to. <laughs> I suppose I could do that at a theater as well. I guess there was not much difference, except that we were at Myron's house. It was a homey atmosphere, and I think that's a, a connection with the people there, you know, because uh, they were there because they wanted to see the movie as well. One of the scenes, one of the portions of the movie, was visiting with French students in school. And these are elementary-age students, or at most middle school, they were, they were young. They were being served excellent quality food by a chef. No junk food, no vending machines. 
Do you have a sense that we could or could not be able to afford that in the USA? I would think that we could, you know, if we cut out some of our other spending, say, on the military. Kids who have nutritious meals or whose brain cells are being nourished will learn better. If a kid is hungry or has been eating junk food, they're not able to grasp anything or as much of anything that the teachers would try and impress on them. It certainly would be worth a try. You know, so a lot of these ideas that the Italians had or the French or Icelanders, the Norse, you know, that their countries are older than ours. And I noticed in the film a lot of these people seem very happy. You know, I'm sure that there's unrest and there's some people are disappointed with things, but somehow they're handling being able to pay or have enough funding to fix meals for their elementary school kids, not just throw some slop on a plate or get something out of a vending machine. That's something that probably could be looked at a little bit closer to see what we can grasp from them. Well, I had a great time being there with you and the other folks who spent that Thursday evening there, sponsored by MoveOn.org. I hope it pays off for MoveOn.org in terms of increasing activism increasing people who are committed to the kind of work that's going to transform this country so that we can invade these countries, take their ideas, bring them back to the United States. And I think you probably do that working within the system. So thank you for your continuing work helping people with a safety net, and thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. You're welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. So, folks, you heard reactions from four people to our communal watching of Where to Invade Next by Michael Moore. Seems like valuable knowledge was shared and a notable sense of group energy. I recommend that you see the show. It's well worth it. Thanks greatly to Andrew Jansen for production assistance, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.